this morning is Psalm 110. Make joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give, him, give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we have now opened your word and have we, we've responded in song and we've just heard it again, calling us to praise. And so would you help us now as we uh, spend time in your word uh, to see what we need to see, to hear what we need to hear. Spirit, would you speak through my words and would you work in our hearts and lives in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I got a serious question for you. Uh, when your toilet leaks, who do you call? Asking for a friend. Do you know a guy? You call Michael Jordan, right? Because he's the best. Yeah, that's right. No, you call a plumber. What about when your car breaks down? Who do you call? You call Gordon Ramsay because he's the best. That's what they say at least. No, you call a mechanic. When you got a question about your taxes, nobody beats Mother Teresa except in taxes. She's not going to help you there. Of course, every day when we face some kind of problem, we're faced with the question, who are we going to call for help? And without thinking, we do two things every time. Okay, we think about the nature of our problem, and we think about the nature of the person who might be able to help us. Michael Jordan has a lot of accolades, but he is not a plumber. He is not the one you should call. And you make the decision based on the identity of the person. Now, you perhaps also want to look at reviews or endorsements of a person. So, so when I say I'm asking for a friend, I'm really asking for a friend? For myself. We want someone who is qualified to solve our problems on the basis of their identity. At the point in the discussion that we're jumping into this morning, Jesus is getting less and less covert about his identity. You might remember that in Matthew chapter 21, the religious leaders questioned Jesus on the source of his authority. They're looking for the origin or the endorsement of Jesus' authority. And when they cannot answer his simple question about where John the Baptist got his authority, Jesus then tells them three parables. And then they come at him with three challenging or trick questions. And now this morning, the discussion about Jesus' authority concludes, and he points not to an endorsement that is outside himself, he points to his own identity particularly the, par the paradox of his identity as the one that is uniquely qualified. And so please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 and follow along as I read the conclusion uh, really to this question about Jesus' authority beginning in verse 41. 
And this morning we will uh, discover that the identity of Jesus, who he is, is what silences his rivals. The identity of Jesus is a paradox that demands regard for his authority and silences those who question him. Look with me at Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now clearly this is the punchline, the punctuation on the discussion regarding Jesus' authority. His identity is the paradox that demands that we regard his authority. So let's spend the next few minutes unpacking, really, Jesus' reasoning here as we see him revealed as the son of David and David's Lord. And as we move through the text, we'll hang our hat along the way on the three questions that Jesus asks. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And how could he be David's son and David's Lord? And the answer to these questions will reveal Jesus' identity as the one uniquely qualified to solve our problem, and his identity will require something of us. So let us consider the first question in verse 41. It says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? So in the flow of Matthew's gospel, the last two chapters have taken approximately, I I would guess, about 45 minutes of time. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are still present, having just asked Jesus these series of questions. It may be the dialogue in chapters 21 through 23 takes place in in afternoon, and Matthew goes out of his way to say, they're still there. Court hasn't adjourned. The judge, or Jesus, now gets the final word. And here is his question. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is a title or a role. Um, It is equivalent to the Messiah in Hebrew, and Messiah simply means Savior. So what do you think about this Messiah, the Christ, the Savior? What will He be like? What will He do? Who do you expect Him to be? That is Jesus' question. And so I ask you the same. What do you think of the Christ? What is he like? What do you expect him to do for you? How do you think he would act? How would you characterize his ideology or his value system? How would he spend his time? Now that question is the most important question that you could wrestle with. 
And how you answer this question about the nature of the Savior is, is really dependent on something else. It's dependent on the nature of the problem you perceive you have. And so before you start giving Sunday school answers, sit with me here for a minute. Here are some possible answers that you could give to the question, what do you think of the Christ? The Christ is a politician who will legislate morality and protect minorities. The Christ is a hippie who would offer some secret home remedy to, to ease all of your aches and pains. The Christ is a warrior who would just wipe out his enemies and save his nation. The Christ is a teacher of all wisdom who would lead people into a higher state of enlightenment. The Christ is a prophet who would write down a mysterious code that those who crack it would find a secret door to God. The Christ is a spirited environmentalist who will preserve the earth for future generations. The Christ is a scientist who will cure cancer and, as, and human suffering will cease. The Christ could even be a husband or a wife who will satisfy my deepest longing for companionship. Now those might sound like preposterous answers to the question, what do you think of the Christ? Who do you think he is? What do you think he's like? But you have to recognize that they're not as far-fetched as they appear. On the one hand, they're not far-fetched because those are, you might have recognized it, really the claims of other major world religions about the nature of the Savior. But they're also not far-fetched because, I would argue, a, a universal principle reality of the human experience is that we know that there's something we need saving from. Now, the chief problem that we perceive we need saving from will vary from person to person. So some might tend to look for the Messiah to be a scientist or the environmentalist, and others might look for him to be a warrior king or a politician. But every person needs saving from something, and every person looks to something or someone to save them. That is a universal. And so to answer the question, what do you think about the Christ? You must first consider the nature of your problem and consider then the nature of the person who would be able, qualified, to solve your problem. Now, the Pharisees that Jesus was addressing were doing just that. Jesus is talking here with religious leaders who knew their Bibles, who knew that a Messiah was in fact promised for the nation of Israel. And when the Old Testament scriptures referred to or pointed to the Messiah, it was pointing to the long-awaited snake crusher who would reverse the curse on Adam and Eve and all of humanity. They were looking for the blessing of Abraham to finally come and bless all the nations. They were looking for the heir to David's throne who would rule in righteousness forever. They were looking for the one whom Isaiah and the prophets promised would deliver God's people again. That's all great, but the pressing question, if the prophets are saying that the Messiah is going to come deliver God's people, deliver them from what? 
He's asking this question to the religious leaders of an oppressed minority people group in the Roman Empire who are preoccupied with the Roman occupation that they see at every corner, every day of their life. Who have been promised that God would send a Messiah to restore God's people and His blessing to this nation. So you must understand that they were looking for, anticipating that this Messiah, the Christ, would be a political savior, a warrior king, riding on the coattails of King David. And in their liberation from Rome, God would smile on them once more. Now, Jesus starts here. I start here because the identity of the Christ, of the Messiah will reveal to us what we perceive to be truly our greatest problem, and it will actually reveal our real greatest problem and the only possible solution. So this true identity of of the Christ is of utmost importance. If we get the problem wrong, then we get the Christ wrong. And if we get the Christ wrong, then our problem's persist. So we need to get the identity of the Christ right. And Jesus presses in here. He immediately asks a follow-up question. Look at verse 42. Whose son is he? What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Like, that's the central question. His pedigree. His heritage. Well, it happens to be an important question because it sets the stage for the argument that Jesus makes as he reveals the true identity of the Christ. The Pharisees then are quick on the draw with their response. They said to him, the son of David. Whose son is he? Son of David. David's. Now, I just want to point out for you that this is now the fourth time that the Pharisees have been really quick to respond in, in Jesus' questioning in this dialogue. Look back with me uh, to Matthew 21. They plead ignorance when Jesus questions them about the origin of John the Baptist's authority in verse 27 of Matthew 21. But they rally themselves. Okay? Come on, guys. We could do better this time. All right. Parable of the two sons. They're quick to identify that it is the first son who did the will of his father. In the parable of the tenants, they are quick to suggest that the master must throw away those wicked tenants and get new ones who will care for the vineyard. And in chapter 22, verse 15, they are quick to add that the coin, oh, it has Caesar's image on it. And each time, their answer has unwittingly pinned them against the wall as Jesus comes in closer and closer for the finish. Even though each time their answer has been technically correct, it has proved their wrongness. So here, in this instance, are they, are they right or wrong? Who will the Christ be? Oh, the son of David. Right or wrong? Right. The scriptures are quite clear. Of course, the Messiah they've waited for is David's son. In fact, for 900 years, 
On the walls of their temple, this is my imagination, has been plastered King David's family tree. And they've inspected each child born. Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? They could bet the farm that if God was going to keep his word to his people, he would do so through the line of David. Well, Matthew's gospel has already given us opportunity to uh, really to review the promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel 7 which was forefront on the Pharisees' mind. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 16, And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The word of the Lord to King David. And Matthew has gone to great lengths then, up to this point, really to make clear for us that Jesus is, in fact, the son of David. His opening words, in fact, the very first words in Matthew's gospel highlight this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Blind men call out to him on multiple occasions through his life, have mercy on us, son of David. And he does not correct them. The crowds in Matthew 12 at seeing Jesus cast out a demon surmise, could this be the son of David? And then most recently, in Matthew 21, the crowds at the gate and the children in the temple cry out, Hosanna, the son of David. And so these religious leaders here have David's family tree plastered on his wall. They've examined him. They know Jesus is on the chart. But he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't smell like a king. He sure doesn't sound like a king. So they presume he isn't a king. He isn't this Messiah we've waited for. His only endorsement is the crazy grasshopper camel hair guy from the desert. So it's pretty safe to say, well, I, sh I should say Jesus does, okay? He does imitate his great-great-great-great-grandfather, King David, but in some very obscure ways in the Gospel of Matthew. For example, he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. That's not the city where David lived or was born. It's the city where David was anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. Jesus plucked heads of grain on the Sabbath, and David ate bread, the bread of the presence in the temple. And Jesus compares himself. And then most recently, Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a donkey. Just as David rode a donkey into Jerusalem after the death of his insurrectionist son, Absalom. So it's pretty safe to say, uh, like that's the list of the comparisons between King David and Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And it's pretty safe to say that Jesus, he doesn't look like this warrior king that the Pharisees need. He does not look, they would say, like King David at all. I mean, King David was a strong warrior king who led Israel into battle and was victorious. 
David's followers were not fishermen. They were mighty men. And we've already seen that they have written Jesus off. They've already ruled him out as the son of David, which they've been waiting for. They're looking for a Yelp review that says, comes with 40 mighty men, not 12 fishermen, and will lead you in victory. No, this Jesus, he's just another insurrectionist, a public nuisance. He's not the one. So they get the answer right, technically. The Christ will be the son of David. But Jesus doesn't hold back any longer. He's got them in the corner on the ropes, and he closes in now with this final question. In verse 43, he continues. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet, your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, there is so much to unpack here in these few words that we will easily miss if we don't pay close attention. Jesus quotes here a song, which you may know. The Psalms, most of them were written by King David. This one in particular was. In this psalm, he says, David wrote, in the Spirit. Meaning, what Jesus is saying is, what David wrote is no accident. These words of King David are right and true. They are the words of God himself. And any expectations that you've had of who the Messiah would be, you must take these words into account. Now, we could take a detour here. We won't take a detour here, but we could take a detour here. And we could turn to a letter that Peter wrote much later to a church in which he crystallizes how the Scriptures came to be, where he says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We could go there, and it's important to go there. Because the words in your Bible are not, are not the words penned by a few dead men that we're just hoping pan out. The words in your Bible are spoken as the very words of God written and penned by real living men, approximately 40 of them, over the span of 1,500 years. And the Bible tells one single story about a Savior, Jesus. Thus we say that the Scriptures are inspired. David wrote the psalm. But David was not in left field all alone on his own imagining this song. No, he was carried by the Spirit. But we won't take that detour. Okay, we'll come right back now to Jesus' words. The Psalms were right in the heart of these Pharisees' Old Testament. Okay, Here's the Old Testament, and the Psalms are right in the middle. In Psalm 110, is one that Jesus quotes. And it's probably one of the Pharisees' favorite psalms because Psalm 110 is a psalm that they would have understood to be referring to their Messiah, the one that they have waited for. Psalm 110, well, I want to read it for you. It paints the picture of, of a victorious 
king who sits at the right hand of Yahweh. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. You get the sense why these Pharisees might have liked that? That's the guy that's going to lead them out of Rome. They'll be a free people once more. God will smile on them. They'll be the ones that have these new brilliant clothes. But Jesus quotes only the first verse. That's where he wants to draw his attention. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the English Bible isn't very clear about um, that the Lord who is talking to my Lord are different persons because we have the same word. In fact, the Greek has the same word. Still not helpful. The Hebrew illustrates that it is Yahweh, the personal name for God, who is speaking to Adonai a title, my Lord, my Master. David is writing, Yahweh speaks to Adonai. Yahweh speaks to my Lord. Wait a minute. The king, let me get this right. The king has a master. The king has a lord. The king has a boss. This isn't a democracy or some republic. This is a monarchy. There is one man at the top. But David in the spirit claims to have himself a Lord, someone over him. Now, my, in my imagination at least, this is a radically new revolutionary idea to the Pharisees who hadn't read that this way before. I'm importing myself into the story because that's not how I've read it before. Let's just keep working because here, this, this Messiah, this Christ, we are now going to see as David's son and David's Lord. But what is David's Lord in the psalm doing? In the psalm, Yahweh is presumably sitting down on his seat, his throne, doing exactly as he pleases, as the scriptures reveal. And Adonai, David's Lord, is also sitting down at his right hand. There's significance there in being seated at the right hand. The right hand being seated there is the seat of honor, the seat of influence. The, the man at the right hand has the ear of the king. The scriptures use this position to really highlight the equal status between the Godhead. 
And by quoting this passage, then, Jesus is presenting a paradox regarding the Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah, the Pharisees are right, will be a descendant of David. The Messiah will at the same moment be the Lord of David. How in the world can that be the same person? No son is equal to his father, let alone his superior, let alone a lord or master over his father, who is the king. So if the Messiah is David's son, how how could he be also David's lord? Unless that is, that son of David is also God himself. And this is the paradox about the Messiah, the Messiah's identity, about the identity of the Christ. The, the Christ is son of David, yes, and son of God. David's Lord. And there are two earth-shattering conclusions for us here. First, if, if the nature of the Messiah is son of David, fully man, and son of God, fully God, then what does that tell us about the nature of the problem that he's going to come fix? It tells us that our problem is with God. The Pharisees only thought that their chief problem was with Rome when in fact their greater problem was with God himself. Now this is another universal human reality here that whatever problem we think is most pressing is superseded every time by the problem that we have with our Creator. Everything that is broken in this life that we would love to fix is broken because of the problem we have with our Creator. Everything that is broken takes place, takes place in life outside of Eden, outside of the presence of God which means that our Messiah, our Savior, the one who will deal with our chief problem is going to have to do this. He is going to have to reconcile us to God. He's going to have to bring us back to the garden, back into fellowship with God. Now, how will that be possible through this God-man? How would fellowship with God be possible anyways? Two things have to happen for any human reconciliation. In this case, God must move toward man, and man must move toward God, and there we can work things out. Now, that's easy enough in theory. Uh, that's, that's how it works, except... except that God's holiness and His justice and the sinfulness of humans are like poles on opposite magnets that repel each other. However infinitely merciful God might be, He is unable to neglect His perfect holiness and justice to move toward humans. And humans, however badly they want to be back in the presence of God, have this problem of sin which separates them from God. And it is not merely something that they do, it is inside them. And so the Messiah we have been waiting for must be one who is fully God 
and one who at the same time is fully man. God in that he moves toward sinners by offering himself as a sacrifice in their place so that the perfection of his character, his justice, his holiness, and his mercy might all be upheld and won. And he must be fully man, one who lives without sin, such that he has the capability to represent humanity in the presence of God. The only way that salvation is possible for our chief problem is through a Messiah who is fully David's son and fully David's Lord, who would show infinite mercy to sinners on a cross by suffering the infinite justice of God in the same moment. That's the conclusion, the first conclusion, the Savior we need is in his nature paradoxical. The second conclusion is the punctuation of the dialogue regarding Jesus' authority. If it is true that he is David's son, then he has some authority, right, by by virtue of his claim to the throne. But if he is David's Lord, if he is God himself, then Jesus has now finally answered that question that he was asked back in chapter 21. If the highest ruler in the land submits to the Messiah, indeed everything in his domain is likewise under the authority of the Messiah. At the very least, okay, what Jesus is doing is he is citing their champion who endorses the Messiah, okay? Works a little bit like this. Tanya says that the double pretzel baconator at Wendy's is the best burger. I believe her. If King David says, my Lord, regarding the Messiah, then the Messiah must likewise be good enough for the religious leaders who hold David in highest regard, but this is all a little bit theoretical still. It's a little bit of a hard conversation even to have. Is, let's get to the bottom line. Is Jesus claiming to be that son of David and that Lord of David? Is Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, the Christ, the one sent from God to deliver his people? I would suggest to you that while Jesus will be clearer in the coming chapters, he says exactly as much as is needed to say at this moment. And here's the conclusion. Jesus is establishing his identity as the Messiah, who is both David's son and David's Lord. He is the one uniquely qualified to save people from their greatest problem. And his authority is derived in the the fact that he is, in his identity, God himself. These two conclusions, really, that we need this Savior and we need... And, and he is the one that has all authority. Uh, they can't just hover in the air for us. 
Okay? They must touch ground in our lives. What do we do with this? What do the Pharisees do? Look at verse 46. What does this require of us? In the case of Jesus' audience, verse 46 highlights their application. This was what they did with these words. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And so in one sense, it worked. Finally, a little peace and quiet. They were silenced. Okay, the, Jesus' paradoxical authority silenced his rivals, literally. But a few days later, they find the gall to ask him another question. And they ask him the same question. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, Jesus is asked the same question directly. Hold no punches now. Tell us. Were you talking about yourself as David's son and David's Lord? The high priest Caiaphas asks him in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers referring to Psalm 110 again. You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And as soon as he gives his answer, he is nailed to a cross and dies, delivering his people who come to him in faith from their greatest problem. And Hebrews 1, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 2, tells us clearly that when his work was finished, when he had died, risen, and ascended, it says, he sat down. His work is done. Everything that was needed for you to be at peace with God has been accomplished. And indeed, as he promised, he is coming again. So the question that we started with, we still ask now, what will you do with the Christ? What do you think about the Savior? Do you regard his authority? Because you will either question his authority, or you will submit to him. When you learn his true identity, you will either love him or you will kill him. So here is what I would implore you to do today. Come to him. He is the only one who can save you, the only one who can fix the biggest problem you will ever face. Believe him and you will be saved. All your other problems, the economy, your job, companionship are so far secondary to that chief problem that all humans face such that if you are at peace with God the apostle Paul says that you can learn the secret to being content in all things you can have peace that passes understanding it is Jesus the Christ who takes care of your chief problem and by virtue of solving that problem assures you of a future where all the other problems will disappear. So come to him in faith. 
And when you come, submit to him. There is only one who is Lord of all. You can fight him, resist him, reject him, or you could do what these religious leaders were unwilling and unable to do, and you could submit to him. This means that he is also your Lord. Were you even a literal king like David? You submit. You're at the summons of your master. Now, how you perceive your problem will be how you perceive your Savior. Okay, the Savior has come for you as the Son of Man and the Son of God. So look at your problem again and find in Jesus the one you have been waiting for. You need not look elsewhere. The Son of David and the Lord of David is an actual political warrior king who will deliver you from your enemies, even that chief universal enemy named death. And he will rule over his people on an unrivaled throne forever, a real king. The son of David and the Lord of David is an actual scientist, for lack of a better word, who actually is able to cure cancer, who actually is able to create a new creation out of nothing, a world in which there will be no pain or disease. The son of David and the Lord of David is an actual companion, the only one who actually can satisfy the deepest ache in your soul. The son of David and the Lord of David is an actual prophet. And he's not just pointing you to the way of God. He is the way to God. And right now he's sitting down. He's not anxious. He's not threatened. His work on your behalf is finished. He then demands your allegiance. And his identity deserves it. And so would you give your life to him today? Would you pray with me? Father, we, we submit ourselves to Jesus our Christ. He is our Savior and he is our Lord. We would have it no other way. And so as we submit to him, would you carry us until the day of his return in peace, knowing that in Jesus we have found the deepest satisfaction for the ache in our souls, the only one who can satisfy and solve our greatest problem. Would you help us now as we sing to honor him with our voice and as we go to honor him with our life. In your name, amen.